Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tougher, even if they don't. Today is January the 21st, 2015, and this is episode 1504 of the Survival Podcast. And I've got a great one for you today, almost like kind of a special treat type of an episode. Uh, Jeff Lawton, uh, who is probably the foremost expert in the world today, I would say, on permaculture, is going to be on the air with us in just a moment. And uh, syncing up with Jeff is not the easiest thing in the world to do. Generally, guests fill out a form a month or so in advance, and then we vet them, and we get in touch with them, and schedule a time, and make them fill out a questionnaire and all. It just doesn't work for a guy like Jeff who's globetrotting all the time and so in demand. Uh, but I am fortunate enough that uh, Jeff and I are friends, and uh, he got in touch with me this week and said, hey, you want to do an interview? I said, absolutely. So we worked him in, uh, dealt with our 14-hour time difference, and uh, got an episode done for you guys that you're going to hear today on uh, new ideas in permaculture, uh, talking about old ideas too, like PDCs, but a lot of things that are going on that are evolving, and you're going to hear some pretty amazing stuff from Jeff today. Before I bring him on, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. Sponsor of the day number one. First is HarvestEating.com. Chef Keith Snow is a member of our expert council and long-term supporter of the show. He has some amazing, amazing stuff for you over at HarvestEating.com. He will teach you how to cook seasonally and locally. And he has some awesome things in the world of uh, herbal seasonings and seasoning packets, uh, organically uh, produced uh, sauces, and many other really great cooking products over there. He's got a great podcast, a great website, a great YouTube channel. And if you don't think uh, cooking is a prepper skill, well, you probably never lived on MREs for six months. I did it one time, and I can tell you, knowing how to cook makes your life a lot better, both in the uh, the good times and the bad. Check it out at westernharvesteating.com. Uh, Just kind of skipping ahead there. Our, our other sponsor of the day, herbs of a different kind, Western Botanicals. If it's herbal and legal, you'll find it in the United States. The other thing you'll find at Western Botanicals are real people that really care about you. If you're not sure well, what will work for you, pick up the phone, give them a call. They'll help you make the right decision for you, including, and this is why I love them, yeah, we don't do that. You need to go to your doctor. Uh, they will tell you when the herbal world is maybe not where you need to be, and they will advise you to consult with your physician in addition to using herbal supplements. Their philosophy is to create an herbalist in every home in America. Uh, they do a good job of that. You can get all the stuff you need to make your own herbal preparations along with some instructional material on that, or you can buy their pre-made herbal preparations, which is mostly what I do. I am a huge fan of their anti-inflammation uh, thing. They've changed it to something turmeric now uh, because the government says you can't call something anti-inflammation even if it's, well, an anti-inflammatory, which is what turmeric dietarily is shown to be. So I use that whenever I got achy joints, achy back. Check it out. They also have a deep heat ointment I use uh, for that. And uh, they're really an exceptional company. I'm really proud to have them with us. And they do an amazing discount for the members of the Support Brigade. They have a premium membership, 50 bucks a year, and then you get 25% off everything they sell for the full year. That's a great deal because if you use a lot of herbals, it, it adds up pretty quick. But uh, if you are a member of the Support Brigade, you get that membership for free. Did you hear that? For free. $50 membership for free. And guess what? A membership to my site is 50 bucks. So that one membership benefit alone of 60 uh, discounts for you 
uh, pays for your entire membership. It's a great company to be working with. On that note, consider joining my member support brigade. You do that, you get exclusive content available nowhere else. Uh, and you help support the show at about 18.3 cents an episode. Remember, you can join for a month for five bucks. You can join for half a year for 30 bucks. You can join a full year for 50 bucks. You get a discount when you go to a full year. Additionally, members, uh, people that, that want to support the show that are former members of the United States Armed Forces, uh, or active members, it doesn't matter, active duty or prior service, Armed Forces, Law Enforcement, Peace Corps, or first responders like EMTs, paramedics, and firefighters all qualify for a discount. If you email me when, before, not after you join, tell me about your service in one or two sentences and I will send you back the discount code. You can use that on any membership term and it, term, and it does apply to renewing, whereas sales usually is only the first year or first term or what have you. All right. With that, uh, let's take a look at the year that was the episode. The year is 1504 because the episode is 1504. Today I have three from Alex Shrugged. One, the War of Naples ends and modern warfare begins. It's really interesting, but if you want that one, you'll need to get over to the wiki and read it yourself. The next one is Mad Mad Queen Joanna and the Modern Spain. And the last one, Christopher Columbus Brings Back the Sun. That's the one I'm going to read, and you might be surprised as to why. The one I give you my take by Jack Spirico. Christopher Columbus Brings Back the Sun. Last year a storm stranded Christopher Columbus at St. Anne's Bay on Jamaica. He and his crew must make repairs using whatever resources they can find, and they will need the native Taino tribe to help. Unfortunately, they know Columbus too well, but Columbus knows an eclipse of the sun is coming. He uses this knowledge to convince the Taino to help him. In 1540, Jamaica will be given over to the estate of, Col of the Columbus family, but they will neglect it. It seems like Columbus couldn't really do much of anything right. Anyway... Imagine what it was like in those days when, this is Alex Shrug's take, when your ship was torn to pieces and you only have yourself to depend on and a few raw resources. How can you affect repairs under such primitive circumstances? First of all, remember these ships are not very big. They're about the size of the Columbia ride around Tom Sawyer Island at Disneyland. That ride is a full-scale replica of, an American, of the American ship Columbia that circumnavigated the world. No kidding. So if you've lost a mast during a storm, you're going to need a block and tackle, which they have aboard any ship, lots of rope, a suitably straight tree, and many men with strong backs. For a reasonably short but detailed description of this very process, read uh, the Horatio Hornblower novel, Beat to Quarters, by C.S. Forrester. You will also learn more about naval tactics in the age of the mast than you can imagine. It's a great read. My take by Jack Spirico, I want you to think about just the size of these ships. And a significant crew that crewed these ships. A significant number of men that would be on the ship uh, with a captain and a first mate and what have you and, and, and sailing across the Atlantic Ocean. And how amazing this age of exploration really was. And, and regardless of many of the things these guys did that we can say were evil acts, the courage it took to take such a journey. Because I want you to think about it this way. These guys are the original survivalists. And, and you can say some of this about uh, settling over land routes, but land routes have resources many times that the ocean does not. So we take this boat, 30, 40, 50 men in it. We have to carry enough water for everybody. Can't drink the ocean water, it'll kill you, you'll die. We have to take enough food for everybody. We might be able to procure some food like fish and whatnot on the way, but the open ocean is not a place that you catch fish you know, with the technology of the day. Now here's the key. 
You pack enough provisions to make the journey, knowing that you'll resupply on the other end as best you can. Hopefully you can pack more than you need to make that journey. But let's say that you have a 60-day voyage. Okay, Let's not worry about how far what is from what. Just call it a 60-day voyage. And that's how long you expect the voyage to take. So maybe you have 80 days worth of provisions, if you can fit it in the ship. On day 40, you have a fundamental reality. Every day forward, if you don't turn around and go back, you have one day of provisions that you're not going to replace unless you make it to your destination. And that becomes more true every day. So at day 50, right? At day 50, now you're down to a point where you have 30 days of provisions. And you've spent 50 days of your travel time to get where you are. Going back means 20 days of starvation. And, and you can now we can start rationing. But at some point, you realize that you have no choice. You have to find something in the direction of travel you're headed. And if you fail to, your men are going to starve and begin to die of dehydration and starvation. And people ended up, in certain instances, on sea voyages, eating the dead. It's a fundamental reality. It's a sad reality, but it's the truth. And you talk about prepping. When you went to, to, to the sea on a trans-oceanic voyage on a relatively small ship with a significant number of people, you better be prepped or you could end up in a true disaster. That's my take by Jack Spirico. Okay, next, let's get ready to bring Jeff on. I wanted to do something, though, a little different this time with Jeff. I didn't want him to spend 10 to 15 minutes of his interview explaining what permaculture was for those that aren't familiar with the term. So I thought I would give you my version of what is permaculture before I bring Jeff on to actually talk about it and save him having to answer that question for the 450,000 millionth time. So if, so if you ask me what does, uh, permaculture is, I would tell you it is a design science based on ethics. And that's the best way I can describe it right there. But it doesn't really tell you what it is. So I will tell you that. But get that, in, get that in first. It's a design science. So it's a science on how we design things that's based on ethics. So those ethics are care of the earth. We don't harm the earth. Care of people. We don't hurt people. And a return of surplus to the end of the first two. So if I were explaining to you this way, and we primarily will today talk about this from an agricultural perspective, growing food, growing livestock, etc., But we could design anything with permaculture. We could design a Fortune 500 company. We could design a bank. We could design a banking system. We could design a community, a town with permaculture. Not just the edible stuff on the sidewalks, you know, instead of putting in fake trees, we put in real trees and produce real food. But actually the functioning of that town or the functioning of a company using permaculture thinking. Okay? And the way that works is we first set for ourselves two primary restrictions. In our actions, we can't harm people, and we can't harm the earth. And I think that's things that are universally ethical. That's why the, the ethics were chosen as they were. They came from hundreds of, of indigenous cultures across the world who had come to these common ethics. And you might think that people that, that come from you know one part of the world and another part of the world in a primitive society would have very different ethics, and some of their ethics are very different, but there were common ethics. And one was you couldn't mess everything up where you lived. If you want to put it in, in redneck, you can't crap in your own backyard for very long and get away with it. Okay, 
and that you had to not harm individuals, that, that people had to be cared for. Uh, that being anything from children to your fellow man, your brother to the elderly, you had to have to care for people. Those are very common ethics that most of us share. And we've been led to believe that we can't conduct business and not hurt the earth. Or that any talk of that means global warming, nonsense, and taxation on carbon. No, it simply means there's this one ball of rock we all sit on, and if we screw it up, we're screwed because we don't have another one. So we have to take care of it. And those are very, very common ethics. Hunter-gatherer societies knew they could only gather so much and hunt so much and take so much. The system had to be regenerative. And that if we're going to have a business, if we're going to have a farm, if we're going to have a bank, if we're going to have a community, that we want it to be sustainable. And a lot of politics have been attached to that word. But the reality of sustainable means that it's capable of continuing, regenerating itself, and growing over time instead of crumbling and failing when it runs out of the ability to take inputs from elsewhere. And you can't have a business that constantly asks its, its stockholders for more money. It has to produce a profit and return it to the company where it cannot be sustained. You cannot have a farm be infinitely sustainable if it relies on inputs from off the farm that in themselves are not sustainable. And if it continues to damage the, the earth, it's not only not caring for the earth, it's not sustainable because you can only damage something for so long before it won't give you what you want anymore. And permaculture is an acceptance that these are functional facts. And therefore we applied this discipline, this restriction to ourselves so that we can produce sustainable systems. And like I said, we can do that in agricultural uh, endeavors, but we can do that in banking. We can do that in a company that produces computer software. The thinking is universal. The big key and the most important thing with permaculture is at the, at the same time you're avoiding what you would call analysis paralysis, too much thinking and too little action, to understand that it does make sense for every hour of action to have 10 to 15 hours of thought process using design science to analyze every edge and every energy that the entity that you're designing will interact with. If I'm a bank then my, my customers are one edge, right? So if customers come up to the banking counter and they want to deposit money, withdraw money, open an account, whatever, that's an edge, that's an interface. That's where my customer service people, my tellers interact with my customers and my account managers in, interact with my customers. And there's an energy exchange. Money being an energy unit flows into and out of the bank. But then I also want a pleasing experience. I want a place where people can park and be happy. There's another edge there. There's another energy interaction there. And every single component of that business has edges and energy interactions. And that's the same when we go to do a farm. On a farm, there's a place where animals move on a daily basis as they paddock shift. And there's edges that that creates. If there's a limitation of where that animal can go, and on the other side of that, there's a place that animal can't browse, there's an interactive edge there. And there's an energy exchange there. And I have to analyze the solar energy that comes in, the wind energy, the sound energy. I have to analyze every energy, and I develop a layered approach to understanding how the system functions, what I want the system to do, how the system interacts with itself, and then I can make decisions that create systems that recharge themselves. And I have to understand that it's going to be necessary for me to look at two major outputs from any system. One that we would see and we would call is profit, and one that we would see and call is pollution. And as we look at pollution and profit, 
In our modern world, we've lost touch with what those two things mean. Pollution simply means a surplus of something that we have no direct use for, and profit is something we have a direct use for, whether it's money or it's food I can shove in my mouth and eat. And what we have to do is realize that both of those things, if we design the system properly, are profits. That cow poop is a profit. Duck poop is a profit. If we grow corn, all the stuff except the grain that we can eat or sell is also a profit if it's properly harnessed, whether it's compost, it uses silage, it doesn't matter. There's, there's a fuel source. It can be turned into something profitable. And that no matter how much we turn into profit, we always have to realize that a certain amount of that profit must be reinvested to the system that produced it, or we're in an extraction mining model instead of a farming model. And if I take a company and I extract every dime of profit out of the company, it's only a matter of time before that company is bankrupt. And if, I'm in a, if I am a, a extraction capitalist, I can move on and make another company and extract. And as long as I can get away with that model, I can keep acting like a miner, like a locust, going from place to place to place. But if I want to build a company that grows over time, that sustains itself, that creates jobs, that does good things, that serves its customers well, then some portion of the profits that come from that company must be reinvested back into it every year. And in a farm, we have to do the same thing. If we're taking everything that's produced by that farm off the farm, doesn't matter whether it's for the purpose of putting money in our pocket or the purpose of charity, if we extract all of it, it is only a matter of time before the farm becomes a wasteland. And the only thing we can then do is dump enough chemical on it to try to keep it going. But if we reinvest, if we convert pollution to profit, and we take actual profit and converted profit and take a portion of it, a significant portion, and continuously reinvest it, the system becomes stronger and produces more surplus over time. That's what permaculture is. And it's why even if you never want to grow a tree, you should learn about the design science. And the greatest work that's been done with it has been done by putting food into the, onto the plates of people by creating regenerative systems that produce food and fuel and energy and surplus. But it's important to understand that the thinking, the methodology, the design science can be applied anywhere. And the greatest teacher I know of in permaculture today is Jeff Lawton. And it's my great pleasure right now to introduce him to you guys once again. And with that, Jeff, hey man, welcome back to the Survival Podcast. How you doing, man? Oh, good. It's great to be here, too. Uh, yeah, you, uh, you're as busy as always. The last time I tried to get you, you on, you said you'd get with me when you could because you were getting ready to get on a plane and uh, do some relief work in Africa. Maybe we can start out with how that went. Well, that was, uh, it was great to get back into the, um, the front line, really. Um, it was a little bit like the early days in the Amazon to be at the, uh, in the tropical Africa, tropical West Africa. And, um, um, to know that I could still do it at my age anyway <laughs> and, uh, and and experience made it a little bit more uh, I knew what what we were going into and um, difficult terrain a um, lot of people out there that still need so much help um, and um, and the aid organization I was working with gave us great credibility to to just be trusted and get out there and give them good design opportunities. And we're moving forward with orphanages. So it was, uh, it was about designing orphanages um, that would have uh, permaculture as their theme uh, to educate the kids and, um, and uh, leave them with a medical center 
um, education centre and a demonstration site on the ground. So lovely theme, and 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 the uh, the orphans end up as uh, permaculture teachers or or uh, alternative medical practitioners uh, to help their own people when they when they get to uh, adulthood. So uh, um, we've got quite a few of those going across uh, different countries in West Africa now. So. Um, and, and just nice to get that front line feeling again to be be out there where you're getting bogged in the four wheel drive and getting out to remote villages and and uh, lovely lovely people but just people who needed help so uh, it was nice to put those few days in and um, it's nice to have that real connection. I, I won't be doing the long term work out there. We're positioning people. We're training people to get in there and do the. The earthworks and the building and the renewable energy and the waste systems set up the education. Um, we'll be directing. I'll be delegating and directing the distance. But when I've been there and I've I've I've, I've really had a taste of it and the experience, I, I feel better about directing people. Do you ever sit back and just think to yourself, kind of a wow moment with? You can go into a third world situation and empower people with permaculture to feed themselves, to build local economies, and yet we have people in, in America and, and the rest of the developed world going in and doing basically very high-end backyard landscaping, and the same principles can be used to fine-tune the operations of a business, even if it's not in agriculture, at just the absolute, almost ridiculous level of flexibility the permaculture design thinking has in its ability to positively affect things from an orphanage to uh, a company. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I like to edge think things. So I think the ability to think at the extreme edges of any physical or, or even time event, and, and it's an edge of application. You know, we can go from the smallest to the largest, from the poorest to the richest, uh, from from quite simple systems to extremely sophisticated complex systems so um, that's where we where we, we thrive out on that edge and, and um, um, it, it, it's kind of exciting but um, I, I'm, I'm, I'm impatient I, I, I imagine <laughs> it was all going to happen a lot quicker and, and it will be taken up a lot quicker but it, it's moving now things are definitely moving we can definitely see some transition and, and action. So, I mean, on, on that note, you're like a constant teacher. Like you're one of those people like me, you can't help yourself. You have to constantly be teaching. And the the kind of the, the real beginning total immersion education in permaculture, of course, is a permaculture design course. Uh, you've done two online versions recently. My folks at Permaethos, we did an online version. You guys are about to come out with your third uh, online PDC. That starts in, uh, what, 7 February? You want to tell folks about that? Yeah, seventh of February. Um, on uh, it'll be announced on uh, our free video website, jefflawton.com, and uh, we'll have the doors open for a few days as we as we fill the course. And, um, and we've been putting everything back into uh, better production all the time. So we've got extra footage. Um, we've got extra. Um, we've got extra classroom teaching time, and, and we just found it. Um, very, very effective to be able to give people that all that extra educational imagery, educational experience, um, and the results speak for themselves. The, the endorsements speak for themselves. Um, so I'm very excited about why, where we go from here because we're moving so much quicker um, with the educational 
systems online. And the students, it's just remarkable what the students have achieved, absolutely remarkable, which is also encouraging. So I put a lot of effort in there, putting a lot of effort into getting that extra filming, high-quality footage to explain things for people. I'm listening to what people are saying. What, what, what extra information do you want? How much... What, what do you have difficult with, with understanding? So we can get this high definition footage and, and, and the explanation going over the top. Um, do a lot of Q and A. So I actually did a Q and A from Togo when I was in Togo, a uh, little bit rough cut. And I did a, a, a Q and A session in Bangkok airport on the way home. So it all looks real too. We're on the job answering questions and, uh, I'm about to do, uh, uh, a consultancy out there in, um, the Himalayan uh, state of India, so I'll probably do a Q and A back from uh, from Rishikesh in India, um, and and I think that's what people like to see. We're 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 out there. There's real credibility in what we're doing. We're not just talk about this stuff. Yeah, we're, absolutely. I mean, I think that uh, there's a lot of people still in the developed world that that have a hard time understanding that this stuff actually works. Like, uh, but when I think to me the biggest credibility is if you can go into a place where people either eat today or they don't. And you can put these systems in and they welcome you back. That's all the credibility I need because there's places where frankly, if, if what you did didn't work at all, you couldn't go back <laughs> because it's really important that you're able to feed your kids. And in America, we take for granted the fact that as long as there, we, you know, we get a paycheck this week or whatever, you can just go down to the local market and buy food. And whether it's the best quality food or not, it's still food. And you guys work in some parts of the world where it's not quite so simple. There, you know, there's people that go to bed at night. Not just because of economics, but solely because the food isn't there. And we can go into a hundred different reasons why, but in the end, it's not there. And, and what you guys are actually doing is empowering those people to take that part of their life back. And I, I think that like the most universal thing we all have, uh, you know, really is shelter and food. If you can't shelter and feed yourself, no matter where you're at, no matter where you live, no matter who your parents are, you're in real trouble. And you guys are able to actually go into places where people are, are hungry. And it puts systems in that, you know, feed those people and then they continue to re, you know, reestablish themselves and grow. It amazes me that you guys will take a person that maybe, uh, you know, is an orphanage, has, at an orphanage, hasn't even learned how to read and write. And a year later, they're teaching permaculture and doing very well at it, by the way. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, it's also the, the situation that uh, a lot of those sites, they're, they're looking for a, um, a first world technical miracle that's going to get them out of trouble. Yeah. Um, yeah. So here, here in the developed world, a lot of us realize we have technical issues and we're sort of tending to lean towards, okay, things have to be greener, more environmental. It's, 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 it, it's a common understanding today that there are some issues and we need to move towards um, buffering some of the some of the environmental situations, but in the developing world, a lot of people are so their life so immediate. Um, they don't really see that so much. Although there may be some changes happening now. Um, India now a lot of people are looking for organic food because there's been so many problems with poisonings, and 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 so many the common common de death in India is 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 air pollution. <laughs> um, that's pretty immediate. Um, uh, but, uh, um, they're still looking for that technical miracle. You know, is there some app, app, app you can have on your iPhone that helps you or, you know, so, um, it, it's hard 
sometimes that's to say, no, look, it's not like we're going backwards to old systems, but there's a new way of, um, of, of looking at this. There's a new frequency in the way we look at traditional knowledge and appropriate technology today, and we can redesign it all um, to get you a, 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 a very healthy environment. Um, so, yeah, it, it's, it's quite difficult at times to get that um, conversion in the way people think in the third world and the developing world. But once you've got it, they can. Once you've got them convinced this is a good idea, yeah, they apply very fast. They know that it, what we do now uh, makes us not just you know, it doesn't just feed us tomorrow, but it increases our potential wealth every day. And, and as you've been doing this, you've also done an awful lot with these these videos you mentioned on on your site jefflawton.com. Uh, these videos are free to anybody that basically subscribes to your your email list. And I want to put something out there for you now, so it avoids confusion. If you if you go to the site and you you opt into the email list, uh, the site remembers who you are for a certain period of time. You come back to see a new video and you just see it. You might come back and all of a sudden you can't see the new video, um, and you have to stick your email address in again. But just think of that like logging into your account. Once you've already opted in, you've not opted in twice. It's just to make sure that you, you you're you're part of that list. But you've been putting out like Tremendous top quality stuff. I mean, some of this stuff could be on, you know, cable TV easy enough. Uh, I think with the right promotion around it anyway. I'd like to see a weekly show, by the way, um, out on a network like that. But can we talk about some of the, 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 the cooler things that you've put out lately? You just recently had uh, a gentleman, I can't remember if it's Wisconsin or somewhere in the north central United States, the latest video that you put out, uh, the transformation of that individual's property is Pretty amazing. Yeah, we're so lucky we've got the earlier footage, um, and then um, then it, then it's been photographed over the years a little bit. So um, we've put together some of that archival footage and some Google Earth footage, and we put a lot of effort into video uh, into editing really well and and putting quality into that edit. So we um, and we and we put the artistic quality in. Um, and um, carrying a little bit of authority and 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 celebrity status, and and being able to um, ad lib in front of the camera has um, given us um, an an ability to make films very fast. Um, my filmmaker partner and I uh, started off 14 years ago with uh, a little video called Green in the Desert, which uh, was our starting <laughs> is our gateway into into. That the, the whole video, short video scene, um, and because we've worked together for so long, uh, we almost know what each other's thinking, and, and, and we we we're a partnership. So I know what I have to do, and he knows what he has to do, and we hardly have to think about how we how we work together. So um, yeah, just recently we did uh, 25 days. Uh, film trip where we took uh, 19 te- flights, 19 takeoff and landings. Wow! Um, through Hawaii, Canada, America, and Hong Kong, and back to Australia, we had um, 12 days in the air, 13 days on the ground, and came out with 33 films. Um, that's fast shooting. That's real fast shooting. Uh, but we're fast. We're so fast. Um, and and. Um, I don't know how we do it, actually, because we're putting it in the camera so quickly. It's not until we get home and we look at it and go, whoa, we got, you know, 17 long films and, you know, 
10 short films kind of thing or eight short films. Uh, so we put out the, the five, uh, the 10 to 20 minute videos on the, on the video channel. Uh, not too long, not too short. And then we put out under three minute videos on Facebook channels. Um, so people can move it quickly and it, it, it moves out. You know, people got time to see something under three minutes and maybe get uh, hooked into permaculture and then look at longer videos. After they've looked at longer videos, they then start to explore the, the, the internet for the, the detailed information out there in web, in, in, in websites. So we're, we're, we're kind of fishing for, uh, people. We're, we're, we're casting the bait out there for people saying, come and have a look at this. This is worth having a look at. Anybody can do this. Um, you can, like we said before, you can apply it from the smallest to the largest, to the most developed to the most underdeveloped. We can, you know, uh, we can help you spend some of that inappropriate wealth or we can stop you starving <laughs> tomorrow, you know? Yeah, definitely. Um, some of the really cool things that I've seen you put out over the last year and a half, two years with these, these videos. Uh, well, first let's back up. The, the, shooting that much video, I, I've always found, that shooting the video is the easy part. It's then taking the raw video and editing it together. That's the bottleneck, right? Because that is very time consuming. I remember when I was in, in, in school and I was learning, uh, you know, woodcrafting and basically the shop teacher taught me that for basically every hour in the, the construction of a project, you probably have four to five hours in sanding and finishing if you wanted to make it top quality. And that's how the video stuff comes out a lot of times. It's, it's once you've got it shot, putting it together, putting the additional artistic quality in it, adding diagrams, taking out a segment, figuring how, okay, we really should have said that. How do we put this little bit back in there without reshoot? Cause you can't reshoot it. Cause I'm not going back to Molecule or whatever to reshoot five seconds. How do we do that? That stuff takes a lot of effort that I don't think people really understand how much of that effort there is. Yeah. Yeah, and then we do re-voiceovers, but we've, it, it's kind of, um, you have to appreciate the, 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 the artistic influence in there. It, it's, it, it, not everybody can do it. No. Some people are classic artists and, and it's, uh, modern art in, 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 in movie making. And, and it, and there's a certain amount of, um, not only just the artistic, um, rendering, but also, um, the time, the time response is in there that give you the human emotion triggers. It, it, it pulls the, the interest of people and, and, and they get, oh, it, it's like, you know, you, you, you move forward on it. You move towards it because it's got this time into it. The music is important. Um, um, the sequencing, the story that you tell in the time. Um, so you feel like you've watched the video and you've learned something that was worth watching. I'll, I'll even watch it again. I want to just watch that again. I want to pick everything up in it. It wasn't okay. That was all right. You know, <laughs> I wonder if there's anything else out there like that, you know? Yeah. So it, it's, uh, we've, we've really tried to work that up and we watch them and watch them, make sure we've got it. We think we've got it right. And then we, then we release. So, um, we're releasing almost one a week at the moment. Um, and, and that's as fast as we can do it <laughs> right that's, now. That's for what you're releasing, it's, it's pretty incredible. One of the things you released uh, last year was what you called the chicken tractor on steroids. And um, you maybe you can go over that one a little bit for people, exactly what that entails and the story behind it. But also you said you've made some uh, kind of uh, some hacks and tweaks and improvements to it since that video came out. 
Yeah, well, that that was a, a happy little accident initially because I was up in Vermont visiting um, um, a permaculture site there, um, and um, I came across um, a composting system people spoke about, Carl Hammer's Vermont compost, and he was incorporating chickens, and it just made absolute common sense. And, and, and we've always in, included chickens in, you know, this traditional – uh, deep litter yards where you let the chi- you, you have a lot of straw and mulch in a chicken yard and you let them kick it around and increase its quality with manure and de-seed it and, and, and people have used chicken tractors but Carla specifically aimed the functions of the chickens interest in, in the compostable material but contained them in a pit and, and then, and then turned it with an excavator and, and kept their interest turn after turn, but as their interest faded, he used that as the gauge to move into the next process of composting. And um, he was extremely passionate about it, so much so that probably some people might be put off with his um, incredible motivation. Uh, <laughs> I, I listened with absolute interest, and, and we made a nicely edited video of Carl's work. And, and while I was there, I, I actually was – I couldn't help it. I was designing in my mind how you could – miniaturize this a bit or reduce its size and then move it into a smaller interactive system. And, and, and I particularly like the idea of maybe mobilizing it so it was actually moving through a monoculture orchard uh, so the monoculture orchard could be diversified behind the chicken tractor. So... When I got home, I built that system, and um, I marched it around our main crop. And um, what I did was converted a car trailer into a chicken tractor, um, and I filled that chicken tractor up with mulch. Um, and used that as the base material in a metal cage instead of a pit. And on top of that, I put our bovine manure, our, our, our cow manures and horse manures from the farm, but it could be any other manure. And then on top of that, again, I put food scraps, mostly from our own kitchen. And then that was scratched. That is scratched absolutely intensely by the chickens. Their chicken house is reloaded with mulch for the next week's event. And then that is then moved out into an open pile, which they still have more than 50% interest in. And then it's moved out again. Um, into another pile where they have 25% interest and stage by stage they lose interest over about five weeks and we end up with a volume of compost that's regularly produced every week once we're in cycle and then I and then I use that on my main crop garden beds which are a set size and they also have a chicken tractor moving across them just digging up the ground and processing the old the old crop and preparing the next garden. So I, what I did was I disciplined not just the garden tractor in with chickens, but I disciplined the, the, the natural fertilizer creation, the compost creation with chickens. Everything became disciplined. And once you discipline the people, the natural system performs perfectly, <laughs> absolutely perfectly. Well, what I've done is I've made smaller cages and I've contained two cages instead of one. So that the, the material comes out of the chicken tractor, goes in the first cage, and then that cage is taken apart and turned into the second cage. 
and, and then it goes into the third open pile. So I find the chickens absolutely dissemble the piles. It absolutely take them from a piled up heap into a flat layer of, of, of compost in process. And if you cage it, they can't do that. They're, they're, so what we're really doing is we're assembling the elements of relevance for the chickens to increase the efficiency of compost processing. And, and I have been absolutely amazed at the quality of the compost. And I've made a lot of compost. I'm a compost, I would call myself a compost master chef. I've done, <laughs> I've, I've done my 10,000 hours. The reason that I'm laughing is I remember in one of your PDCs where you told the class, I consider myself a compost artist. And some of them got the pun and then the whole class, one guy sniggered and the whole class lost it. <laughs> well, it, 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 I have, you have to put the, 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 the academic sophistication into compost because most people don't realize what artistry and what important artistry it is because it is our main source of, of highly residual organic fertilizer. I mean, it, it's, the, it's the most residual. I mean, and the biodynamic people detest on compost and they realize that it can, it can stay present in soils and still be detectable for between 17 and 20 years. Well, a lot of manures are not detectable within four to five years. And, of course, we know salt-based synthetic fertilizer is gone in, in 18 months, um, um, often in, within a year. So it, it's the long-term lock-up of the materials in the carbon cycle that give us these, these, these not just improved structure in soils, but also this long-term habitat of beneficial soil organisms that are, that are given residence to our, in our soil. So the, the thing with the, the, the materials that hold the, 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 the beneficial organisms is they need habitat, and that's what biochar does. It gives a large amount of habitat for the beneficial organisms. Now, when you look at the compost made by the chickens with this method, what I've nicknamed the chicken tractor on steroids, the scratched material at the end has a large diversity of forms. It's not uniform. It's not uniform in form. It, it, it's, it's not uniform. It, it's got many different forms. There, there's, there's tiny powdery stuff. There's fluffy stuff. There's sort of, there, there, there's, there's, uh, scaly stuff. There, there, there's shreddy stuff like there's fibery stuff, there's still chunky stuff. That I've never seen such diversity in form. Uh, like, because I don't think I've never seen anything quite like it. The, the, the whole, like when you look at compost that's been processed by chickens and you pick it up and you feel it, it's different than any other form of compost, whether it's vermicompost or commercial compost or, you know, typical turn it yourself, cubic yard at a time. I, I've never actually seen anything that feels like it, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. And, and so when you're handling it, you realize it's now because the real test is what, what does it do on the ground? Sure. And, and then I've, I've done that research because I've, I've got, um, 12, I've, I've got 12 gardens um, with 300 square meter garden beds. They're, they're surrounded by uh, 100 meters of electric net fence. 
and and it's the size of the electric net that governs the size of the garden for us and then we move that electric net with 50 chickens inside every two weeks so with 12 gardens there's a return cycle of 24 weeks and and i put um about two cubic meters of compost on that 300 square meter area so every two weeks that's put on a 200 square meter a 300 square meter area and and then again 24 weeks later um now i've that's that's almost an acre of garden but um i've been able to reduce that down to two-thirds of an acre and get the same production and half half the increment size of garden so i've halved the size of the garden to 150 square meters and i've i'm I'm, I've got 16 gardens now, and I'm moving the, the chicken tractor every every week. And and all of that has happened because I've got the chicken tractor on steroids on the outside, producing this high quality fertilizer right where I can use it to my convenience. So what I've now done, I've I've put the design mind, uh, tried to put the design mind at rest because now I've looked at. Um, stationary systems because on some of our aid projects we weren't able to do um movable systems so we built long chicken pens down slope um and started a composting system at the top in a Mm. cage and then turned it down slope and some of those have turned out wonderfully well and at the bottom of the system two cubic meters of compost comes out every week and and again same result on the ground I've now looked at designing, and I've got a, a retaining wall ready, a, 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 a permanent house that sits over a retaining wall. And so um, I can, I, I have a, a, a chicken house with a floor with doors in it so that I can open the, the floors, uh, the doors in the floor, and, and the mulch falls out. <laughs> and then I have, I, I have a back wall that, that swings back like a door and I can load the mulch in with a tractor. And then I have a gap behind the chicken house that sits over the retaining wall and it has another door sitting behind that I lift up and I can load manure with a tractor and food scraps with a tractor. And that just takes all the manual work out of the initial stage. Um, and, and, and I'm, what I'm in the process of building this system and, and, and I think this is going to be the ultimate chicken fertilizer factory. Somewhat mechanized, but that's what a lot of people want. They want to take the manual labor out. Well, no, it's not so much do you use any machinery, but what do you get as a return on that use of machinery? Um, I think if we look at, for instance, going a totally different way, but it's just an easy way to understand it, if you look at the amount of diesel fuel it takes for an excavator to put in a kilometer of swale, and then you compare that to the advantage that that kilometer of swale does for a thousand years, it's it might as well be a thimbleful. And with the, these chicken systems, there are places where you have to tweak that technology to make it work. For instance, at our place in West Virginia, we set up a spot where we can turn the compost with the front end loader because we can do it quickly. And we were spending hours having our woofers do it every day. And it just was in a startup mode. It was taking too much time from our volunteer labor force and taking up too much energy, honestly, in human work that needed to be done for other developments. 
and that sped it up. And now we're looking into basically building um, contained areas for each of these so the chickens can be let into each one as we choose. So they can be let in, it can be turned, let in, it can be turned, and when they go away and they don't want it anymore, let them into the next one. So that's a permeation. So I, I think that some of those have to happen. What about going the other way? So you have me thinking now, how can I do more of this type of thing here on my property? It's a three-acre holding. With And you know from the past when we've talked, I have this rock problem where I have a couple inches of soil throughout a lot of the property. You can't get uh, the step-in step poles for the electronet in the ground. So I've been moving more toward uh, the duck world, which we can talk about in a bit, because uh, they're easier to control, basically. It doesn't take anywhere near as much effort to control a duck as it does a chicken. But could you take this system to more of a fully contained chicken tractor system without this larger electronet, smaller number of birds? Could you th see a way to do that to make it more to a place where either for somebody else, maybe size of property, or for someone like me, just the application of the electrical net is not It's not feasible here. So could, yeah, how far down could you take that and still have it be worth doing? Yeah, we, well, that's what we've done on aid projects. We've come down to like 12 birds. Okay. And, and, and a small, long, skinny – well, a, a lot of places we've done a long, skinny um, chicken pen so that we can roll it down the slope. And, and and everywhere we've put a bit of design thinking into it, we've come up with a really good result. Um, and um, – The, the the other of course you, you still get good egg count you still get a pretty good egg count and we don't feed these birds I've got birds here now I've not fed for nearly a year they're only fed with the, with the food scraps that go through so they really work they actually look fitter than the birds we're feeding they kind of look musclier and and they're in good condition and they still go broody so I still got recruits coming through I still got new you know, new recruits because I take the broody sit them on eggs get another set of baby chicks coming through to replace older birds that are dying out of the system. Um, and I'm still getting a certain amount of eggs out of them. So it's not that they're not productive in, in the normal sense. Um, and um, I, I don't know, I'd, I'd like the permaculture world to go out there and make it a sort of a contest on this. What's the smallest um, chicken tractor on steroids we could possibly make? I mean... Um, yeah, can we run four birds this way and make it worth doing? That would be interesting. Uh, and can you – it's probably – you kind of come down to one cubic meter of compost. The compost might be the limiting factor in the end. Yeah. Um, where does yeah. compost stop processing? Somewhere around one cubic meter or, or roughly one cubic yard, something like that. And um, I tried to work out whether I could just get a, a simple flip system where it flips from one side to the other and then rolls out in the garden quickly out of the influence of the chickens. I mean, it, it, uh, nothing's set in concrete here. It's generally to get the end result that we've got high-quality fertilizer. Uh, we're feeding chickens without grain, um, and we're still getting the results from the chickens. Um, so um, it, it just comes down to the fact that chickens are scratching machines. I mean, they're just so good at scratching. Do, I mean, you, they, do you think in time, because you you'd said something I really never thought of there, if you're running one of these systems long-term, specifically a larger system or set of these systems, you're going to get some broody chickens that are going to uh, go broody. If if we then couple that group with the roosters so that we're actually getting the genetics of birds that are all working this way, do you think we're going to end up with birds that are in time better adapted to this type of work? Yeah, I think we're going to select scratchers. I think we're going to select birds that have like you know good legs and they're 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 keen you know they 
chickens love to do this. I, I, I watch them a lot. I can't see what they're eating at the, at, at, at the processed end. I mean, that's sure you can see what they're eating at food scrap end. I mean, sure, that's obvious. Sure. And the next one, well, it looks a bit mucky as it's the next process. But as it gets away, I mean, it's microscopic, whatever they're eating. And I think there's something about the inoculum because it's going through their gut and coming out as a, as a package because they don't, they defecate urine and, and feces together as one package. And we've always known it's high quality stuff, but then they, they kick all that around. The microorganisms probably come through and process through their gut. They might, they might, I would say there's obviously some other things added. Um, whenever we've had a chicken die, and we thought, oh, is there some toxicity happening? And we can't really see anything particular. I mean, everybody gets a chicken die now and again when you've got a lot of birds. Um, we can't see any any detriment whatsoever. I mean, actually, ducks, we say we're comparing chickens to ducks here in some ways, and there's great advantages to ducks being easier to handle. They flock much easier. They're much easier to herd. Um, they're cheaper to fence, and, of course, they defecate in water, and you get, nutrient in water but when you look at what ducks eat i mean my goodness when you see what ducks do i mean you get ducks rear, around the house cow and they're just they're, they're shoveling manure in their in their beaks i mean and i love duck i mean i love duck to eat i mean i love my yeah. i've got a big flock of muscovy ducks and um, when i see what they eat it's unbelievable how they convert that into such fantastic meat but that's really what we're doing most of the time we're facilitating conversions that are almost miracles i mean it's just it's like a miracle when you see what ducks stick their beaks into you would die if you did that yeah i want to go into ducks but before we do you just made me think of a question i had last week and i did my best to answer it guy writes in says i got these chickens they're out on my property they free range through this wooded area got a great big livestock guardian dog i think it was an anatolian shepherd runs out there with them takes care of them dog poops chicken fight over the dog poop and Basically, he was kind of like having his stomach turned over the fact that he's eating the eggs from the chickens that are eating the dog feces. And, and of all feces that you don't want really to mess with, it's dog. But then I looked this up, and apparently this is like normal behavior. Um, I haven't noticed it in my birds, but they're pretty well kept from the dogs most of the time. Um, is that a nutrient? Because like sometimes the animal will do that because it's got a nutrient deficiency. Is that... Because you have dogs in your system. Has that ever been an issue? Is it a concern? Should you just, like, accept it the way we do with ducks eating, you know, cow patties? I mean, what? Yeah. any ideas on that? Because I don't know what to say. It's like I get why a person would be like, ugh. Um, I was seeing the other end. I was seeing dogs eat baby poop. Oh, yeah. You know? Yeah, no. And it's like, oh, my goodness. Um, I have a neighbor that brings a, a 17 cubic yard or 17 cubic foot uh, cart of horse manure a week for me. And I have to keep the dog away from it till the chickens get to it, or the dog eats that. So it does happen. Yeah, uh, it, these are just conversions. Carbon is our sponge, and life is based in carbon and water majorly. And 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 through the carbon, water, oxygen, in in life interaction, things get locked up. I mean, mm. and, and 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 poop is not much compared to radioactivity. That's uh, true. But, you know, That's when true. you when you look at what's happened in Chernobyl. You know, you've got, you've got walls running down the main street at Chernobyl. Uh, they might be slightly radioactive walls, but over a few <laughs> generations, they won't be, uh, because it will be dissipated through the carbon long chain molecules. And 
And, and that's the wonder of compost, and that's the wonder of all these things. Uh, I mean, they are just conversions. I mean, chickens will create eggs even when there's deficiency of calcium in the soil. And, and, I mean, that's that's like some kind of strange, you know, witchcraft. Almost. You, uh, yeah, it's, it's pretty amazing. It's that happens. Now, on the – and I'm kind of with you. What I, what I said was I know it kind of turns you off, but – you know, it, it, it's an old an old farmer's trick. Is if you you find an animal hit on the road, you hang it up over from a tree, and the, the maggots drop, and the chickens eat it. So I don't know how much I'd prefer maggot to poo either. So it's just it's what the animal does, and I guess they do it all the time, whether you know it or not. Yeah, I mean the egg count comes up fast if if you introduce the maggots into your you know you've got a problem you you made a mistake with something you've got maggots in the garbage or something you put it in the chicken pen they eat them all the egg count comes out that day it does um, You're correct you know I, I mean you know I, I i i see um the chickens chase down lizards and eat them i see them chase down mice and eat them oh. uh, they're quite pred- they're quite predatory a, a chicken uh, and a mouse looks like uh like something out of the jurassic park movie it's yeah. it's pretty horrific what a chicken does to a mouse. <laughs> so, um, you know, there's not a lot of sentimentality out there in the animal world. They do what they do because, you know, that's that's that's, that's their functions and things get processed. And, um, and what our job is, I think, is to design the connections so we get the benefits of the byproducts. And, and, and we keep an eye on our soil. And what our soil is increasing in quality and quantity, it's a good enough case to know we're doing the right thing. Um, and animals just do it faster for us. If we design animals in well, they do it faster. I've had to get a lot of bovine manure, at, you know, from from our cows. So we've got cell grazed cows going right around the property. Uh, I can't take it. But I've got I've, um, but I've got this um, a laneway which connects all the gates to the to the movable cell. So I lock my cows in the laneway at night. I give them a little bit of extra feed, and and they're in say um, a short section of laneway every night near some of the local gates that they're going to sell graze through, and that gives us their night manure. So I then use the laneway like an access system to get our uh, our manure to our chicken tractor on steroids. So that's uh, another sort of increment of design where I've got the larger manure easily accessed. So the, the, the cows are helping the chickens, which are helping the garden. Um, but by design, I've made it easier to then pick it up with a machine. That makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. I, I am finding myself more and more gravitating toward ducks, though, Um Again, I think it has a lot to do with me not being able to really use portable infrastructure as much as I would like. And the cost of permanent infrastructure is fairly high, um, especially when you have to jackhammer every hole a fence post goes into. So if we look at ducks, what are some of the advantages you, you would think of for ducks from a standpoint of both meat and egg production? Well, I, I think that they're, they're both rarer products products and um a lot of duck meat is uh, a, a little bit oilier and, and a different quality so um the other advantage is ducks grow so much faster than chickens um you know they're going twice as quick when it comes to putting on on meat if you compare you know they hatch at the same time um the ducks are, are twice the size within a month um the great advantage 
Uh, apart from they're, they're friendlier, they're easier to, to, to move around, uh, they're much cheaper and easier to fence. Um, but the, the, the fact that you get um, a, a very rich water in their pond that then you can use as a fertilizer. So um, they're great advantages, what they do to ponds. And, and if you need a pond sealed, uh, duck manure will seal a pond if you have enough ducks on the pond. Um, but, um, you know, they're, 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 it's great that you can then use that water to add to your compost. You can use it by adding it to your mulch. Uh, or you can oxygenate it and use it directly as fertilizer. Yeah, definitely. We uh, we pretty much move our ducks by moving, since we don't have a permanent body of water here, we move their water tanks wherever we want them to work. And they'll spend a good 60 to 70% of their day in an area just because you've placed their water features there. And, you know, it, it, you try it with a chicken, and a chicken goes wherever it wants to, and 10 chickens, if they're not controlled, go 10 different ways at the same time. The ducks, pretty much, when one duck decides he's making a decision to go north, every other duck's heading north with him. Yeah. Yeah, that's how they move those big flocks in Asia. So you haven't got a move move fence, but you've got a movable pond. Correct. I just fill up kiddie yeah. pools, and the ducks go wherever... The, The pool goes, so we move them through the food forest, and we put the water straight to the, the swales, and then the swales infiltrate the the, fer, the, the fertility uh, from the fertigated water, and the natural cycle takes place there. So instead of going directly onto things with the fertigated water, we're putting it into the nutrient cycle of the forest. Yeah, so you could be leaving behind quite a good aquatic crop as well if you wanted to. So wild rice is your great uh, Zatostra, I think it is. No. Yeah. Uh, your wild rice, the native wild rice of North America, it goes from Canada all the way down to Florida. And it's up to 30 times more productive than rice. You just got to pick it over 30 days because it doesn't come ripe all at once. And, 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 and as kids paddling pool, a reasonable sized kids paddling pool will feed a family in rice. Um, that's a great crop. And you wow. know, then you, you've got water chestnut, uh, Chinese water chestnut, and then you've got, uh, Um, chufa, and you've got uh, Sagittaria duck potato, which is native to North America. And, and then if you're warm enough, you've got Kangkong, which is the, the Ipomere aquatica, the fastest growing leaf crop in the world. Um, that, and, and you've got taro if you're warm enough. If you're in the south there, you've probably got taro you can grow. Um, Definitely. So back up with me, and how are you talking about doing this? Are you talking about basically like, let's say, taking – because right now I use the, the kids' pools, right? I fill them up with water. And when they're ready to go, I just dump them out. Are you saying maybe to leave that that in place like a grow bed, stop adding more water to it, fill it in, use that fertility that's sitting there, grow a crop, and then process that forward? Or how are you saying to do this? Yeah, I'm saying that half fill the pond full of dirt okay. and half fill it full of water. So it's say, um, you know, if it's a two-foot deep um, pond, um, put a foot of, foot of soil in there. Okay. And a, and a foot of water, uh, and then and then the ducks, okay. and let them paddle it out. Let, 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 they'll, they'll stick their heads right down the mud, and they get in amongst it all, and they'll they'll poop it all up. Absolutely. And and, and, and then plant it up behind them, um, and and move them on, and and then grow your crop, and then bring them back and let them let them clean it right up again. Oh wow! Um, oh. Yeah. You know, so you're, you're you're aquatically sort of cycling them across across crop. Now that's the most productive 
you know, crop in the world. The fastest crop, uh, the, the fastest leaf crop in the world is that Kangkong, Ipomoea aquatica. Yeah. Plus you get, you've got w- watercress, which is highly nutritious. And, and the, and the, uh, the most productive crop by weight in the world is water chestnut. We did and those this year in our little garden ponds, and they were fantastic. And I've got a ton to plan out this year. You've got my head going probably the way the guy did in, in New England, got your head with the tractor, because I'm thinking now there's these big uh, – they're cheap, too. They're for mixing concrete in. Uh, they would fit – my swales are six six foot wide and pretty flat in the bottom because they're shallow. And they would fit straight off in the swale. And yeah, it's hard to fence them out of a place, but a little thing like that would be ligety split to fence them out. And I could literally be running little mini aquatic patties all the way through the, the swell system and constantly cycling them back through. And it, it wouldn't cost very much to do it. It wouldn't be much work to do it. I've seen them in Asia that, that where we taught in Vietnam, they quickly took the swells where they got a bit wet and they made them into aquatic gardens along the swell here and there. So they had kangkong, they had rice, they had taro, and they even had little trellises over the top growing, growing vine crop over the top of it. They were sort of putting a, a, a chinampera application over it. But the other thing you can do is some of the fastest growing mulch in the world are some of these floating aquatic weeds which other people are very paranoid about, but they're actually nutrient harvesters and they bond it up in their body and they hold enormous amounts of water. Things like salvinia double their size in 10 days in, in, in the summer and, and they hold 40 times their weight in water. Now, when you hook that out with a, you know, and plenty of fishermen over there and plenty of landing nets, you hook it out with a landing net and dump it on your fruit trees. There are no, no seeds in there that will grow on the land. And, and it's incredible mulch. So you're hooking that nutrient from the ducts back up in, in floating mulch, fast producing float, and mulching it around your trees. So you're walking around with a landing net full of mulch, dumping it on your fruit trees here and there around the garden. So you can grow your mulch that way too. And, and the soil in the end is going to come out. It's not going to be bad either, but it's just going to be anaerobic. So you're going to have to stand it in a pile for a while, let it go aerobic. Let the anaerobic organisms die, let them get eaten by good aerobes, and you're into a high-quality garden soil at the other end too because all that duck poop is going to add and it's going to, you know, the soil is going to build fastest. The fastest soil-building mechanism in the natural world is shallow marine. The second is shallow lakes and ponds in front of forest and prairie. So you've got very fast soil creation. You know, anybody realizes, you know, you don't clean your gutters after a while. You've got trees growing in your gutters because they're little shallow lakes. That's why. And your fish pond's always having to get cleaned out, you know, even if it's a little koi pond or goldfish pond. gets full of soil quick. So we're just making that happen fast and moving that stuff around. So you, you, you'll do enough of that. You'll build up above that rock. you start building soil level up. That's uh, absolutely hurting my head right now with it, – it, it's an entire – it would actually be like in that three-quarter acre area, adding a third of an acre of productivity to it just by moving these systems through it. I, I'm now having to pull my head back into this interview because you've got me designing things for next year. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> you know, uh, like I said, I didn't have enough to do. But that, that actually sounds really, really simplistic and easy to do, honestly. Um, and some of the, I, I don't know about you, I found that some of the, the most elegant solutions actually end up being the most simple solutions. Yeah, yeah. You, you just sort of let it evolve in front of you and, and, and you, you sort of follow the storyline along without being too 
too much of a fantasy. <clears throat> and, and if you've got a little bit of uh, practical experience, you, you start to realize there's, there's an infinite amount of things we can evolve and develop. Um, we haven't even started yet. Um, you know, we haven't seen the systems that are possible in front of us. You know, that, that's generational work. So that's why I think that's why young people get so excited about the opportunities of permaculture. They realize, hey, this, this is quite an interesting, you know, exciting thing to be engaged in. And um, there's plenty still to do. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. There's plenty still to do. So you were talking about something you were calling plugins. Now, I, I, I don't think that has to do with WordPress blogs or Firefox browsers. So what was that about? Yeah, well, same terminology that's recognized, I suppose. It's the patterns of a set of patterns we have now. Um, I just found that um, I've connected um, chickens, particularly well, ducks and chickens, in straw yards where I add straw. It's an old-fashioned system, and they manure it, and I pull it out. And I have those connected. Uh, have another gate connecting them to food forests, uh, which are nice permanent perennial systems. But uh, you know, I can have up to 50 birds uh, connected to a food forest that's an acre in size. And as the food forest gets bigger and bigger and bigger over a few years, which I'm lucky to have and have experience in, um, it just has so much food in it and it becomes such a big thing that they don't make it to the other end because they don't just, they just don't need to get to the other end. They've got enough food at, at the front end. And that means that right on the, on the gate of the permanent pen that leads them to the food forest, they actually compact the ground. There's quite a lot of compaction where they come charging out every day and they go back again and they're, they're hanging out there. And even if I feed them down in the food forest around flowering trees, different places, they'll come down there and they'll get their feed, but they'll go back. And there's obviously one entry point. And, and as my systems get mature, I realize well, I, I actually need like a gate and a mobile chicken house that I plug in the other end. Um, I, 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 it's more useful for me to have, and I'm, what I've done is I've taken uh, trailers, frames like derelict trailers and, and taken the running frame um, or, or car trailers. Uh, I've just taken the, the, the main running frame and built a shed on it that's got laying boxes and perches inside, and I can fill it with mulch and still use that straw yard type principle in miniature. But I, I, I just designed a little safe yard, that's all, around in, in, in sections around food forests, and I just go and plug them in. Mm. I plug them in plug them in for a month, they do everything they need in that area, I do a bit of extra maintenance like I cut a bit of extra, keep them entertained they've done it, I plug them out I plug them in somewhere else so I, I've designed plug-in positions around the farm as it gets to maturity, they get a better deal because oh, we're in new real estate and there's new fruit trees here <laughs> and these ones are coming right now, there's fruit falling um, so I'm, I'm, I'm mobilising the animals more as I get maturity and because it gives them some security too because I've also got more predator habitat. There's more habitat here for the fox. There's more habitat for chicken predators too. So I'm giving them safe plug-in pens, but then they get a bigger range. They get an opportunity, uh, an opportunity range. Um, and uh, I see the egg count come up, see the health of the chickens come up, and I see the health of the food forest come up. And, and I'm the mover. I'm the one. Okay, I'm, I'm, I'm fed. You know, you finished playing the tune there. You got to come and play the tune over here. 
And and then I can also take them to places like the dairy yard, and at times they can run through the dairy yard and take out any potential um, pests or or or, or uh, pathogens that are through the dairy yard. So they're scratched out for a week. They've got a little plug in there, and I move them over to food forest. They're they're moving, and then sometimes they're on pasture and food forest. So I'm just I'm keeping options open for the way I move the small animals and in fact the large animals around. Um, I think it's better for their health and it's better for the general system's health. I mean, it, it all comes back to that rangeland management that Alan Savory started, holistic rangeland management, where you're moving large herds of animals around like cows. But I brought that down to goats. I brought that down to chickens and ducks. Um, I'm even looking at quail. I've got Japanese quail here as well, which lay lots of little eggs. And, and taking them like a little mobile system through an urban garden. Um um, I think it's just more entertaining for us and them and, and better for the system. And I, I'm still involved in it, but um, um, I've been thinking about it for a while, and now I'm actually doing it. That's awesome, because I think what we what we need to fully take advantage of livestock, whether it's a great big cow or a little bitty quail and everything in between, is the ability to provide restriction of its movement or discipline, as you were calling it earlier, and yet still give it a pleasant experience because animals left to themselves in a system, unless the system is so mature and so large and the animals so few in number, instead of being the asset to the system, they create chaos and disorder. Right now I have some chickens that are able to get over their fencing, and every time they get out, the first thing they do is tear out the end of a bed or tear into a swale bank or dig out a new plant or something like that. And those chickens have to, well... They have to take a test ride on the new chicken plucker uh, because they're just uh, too much of a, of, a, of a pain in the rear, actually. But the more we can do to control the animal and yet let it express its itself and its animal self in a positive way, the more we can actually get people raising and managing these animals and the more we can produce because it's always been easier to me. I don't know how you feel about this. It's been easier for me to produce a lot of high-quality calories from an animal than from a plant oh yeah yeah they're much more sophisticated organism but um yeah we need to discipline them and if we're disciplining them in a way that benefits the soil and our productive ecosystem by moving them we must be disciplined by default we mm -hmm. must be in observation it forces to us to observe and be disciplined And the hardest animal to discipline in the system is the human. And anybody who's had, had woofers will know that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Because people come without experience expecting to learn this stuff very quickly. And, and, and they have to be a little bit more, uh, you know, they have to be a little bit more submissive than that. It takes a little while to master it. And, 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 uh, and if you haven't got discipline, if you haven't got regularity, it falls over. And I, I've had to say to people, if this was a family farm, um, it, it, it would be very different and, and, and it would have moved a lot quicker. It, it, it is what it is because we've allowed a lot of people to make mistakes here and come here and learn. Um, and, and that's not a, it, it, it doesn't make it easy. It makes it difficult, but that's, that's the skill we've learned. And we're trying to make that, we're trying to improve that and make models of that. So we're, Um, one of our main missions is to set up uh, better practical education um, institutes worldwide um, and, and 
that's probably where we do most of our, of our aid work and most of our thinking of where we can help people, setting up these practical um, education institutes. Yeah, I, I think that there's a, a big misunderstanding of a lot of people that look to get into permaculture and think, well, if I create an educational outreach, I can get you know, tuition dollars in, uh, get woofers in, I can get a lot of things done and paid for through the educational outreach, otherwise I would have to fund out of pocket. And there's a little truth to that, but the reality is, like you were saying, a lot of things do go a lot slower, and a lot of things you do suboptimum because you want the student to get the learning experience. So there's been times where, for instance, on my property, we've deferred uh, on time putting in a cover crop that maybe should have went in a couple weeks earlier because we had a course set up where we were going to be doing work, and that was part of the educational experience. And, and we've suffered a bit for it, but giving the student the experience, the actual practical experience, is worth it. But anybody that's thinking about going into the educational side needs to understand that there is a lot of sacrifice you make as a property manager or owner for the benefit of your students. And it, it's not as easy, I think, as maybe some people would imagine. Yeah, that, 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 that's the bit you don't, most people don't get. Um, and, and our systems are very, very heavily life-based, whether it's you know, right from the soil through the plants to the animals. And, and, and when you kill something, it doesn't come back. <laughs> it's terminal, you know, it's over. The duck, maybe ducks are dead, well, nothing you can do now, you know, get some more, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And you learn, I'll tell you what, I think that's why I love making children uh, exposed to permaculture principles and just homesteading, farmsteading principles as a whole, that they, they, they learn lessons like that. And I guess maybe one of the softer ways you can learn something is so significant. You know, this year we had a brooder that we didn't quite get the, 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 the protection right on, and a rat managed to get into it, and we had 30 baby chickens one day and one the next. Um, and, you know, the, the rat didn't even eat them. It just killed them all. Um, and those are lessons that you learn when you work with living systems, that there are absolutes. You know, there's there's absolutes like I know you always say in your classes, level's absolute, it's level or it's not. Well, life and death are pretty absolute as well. Death does not come in degrees. Yeah, yeah. So that the, the children that have grown up with it, they understand this stuff, and and they understand the process in the animals too. And they're very responsible and caring for animals. It doesn't mean they don't understand that there's there's a time when they're processed, and and it's no drama for the children who are brought up with it. None at all, not none whatsoever. I, um, I'm sure, like me, you run into quite a few vegetarians, and you probably like me, you have nothing against them. But I think there's a lot of misgivings and misunderstandings too in that world. That there's a lot of the the repair work that needs to be done to our planet that require animals, and animals also have cycles that have to be obeyed. And it, it seems very difficult to me to do a lot of this reparative work completely free of animals. Yeah, it, it makes for much more difficult design work, and, and, and the people have to take up the animal gap and, and do more work, um, and, and, and definitely more design thinking and timing because you've got to get your, your plant cycles timed right. I mean, I like to think of myself as a part-time vegetarian because there are meals that I have that don't have meat in them, and, and most meals that do have meat also have vegetables, and I've got nothing against that. Um, and and um, 
I've got nothing against people who don't want to eat meat at all. That's fine with me. Um, I just wish they'd be fine with me doing what I do to the best I can. I make the best of it. I mean, yeah. Yeah. Uh, the best doesn't always happen, but you make the best of what does happen. And, and I, I don't like having to kill animals, but I do it, and I do it the best way I can. I think I'm good at it. I think I can do it as humanely as you can possibly do it. And, and people are often impressed with the lack of suffering and the efficiency of it. It's a very serious job. It, I, I, don't, I don't take it lightly. And I think that is wrong. I don't think we should take <coughs> life of large animals, particularly, or even small animals, I don't think we should take it lightly. There's a reverence to it. And I no, think that's what's missing. I know whenever I'm, I've decided, okay, like, so tomorrow I'm going to call some chickens and I'm going to get up and process eight birds. Uh, when I go to sleep that night, I, I go to sleep thinking about that fact, that tomorrow I'm going to go out and basically process and get ready for consumption animals that at some level are my friends, right? And I think that's, that is hard for some people to take and understand, and I have, I have no issues with people that choose to live another way. But like you said, a little bit of tolerance the other way would be uh, appreciable. We, you and I have a common friend who's a bit of a – well, he's a bit of an interesting fellow, Paul Wheaton. Uh, but occasionally he just makes some bang-on observations. And what he said to me one day, he said, Jack, if, you were a veg if I was a vegetarian and I was coming to your house, what would you do as far as preparing a meal for me? And I said, I would make you the most fantastic vegetarian food I could cook for you. He goes, yes, but if uh, if you were a vegetarian and I, I, I was living a, a paleolithic lifestyle like you do that's very meat-centric, you probably wouldn't fix me meat. And that was a – I had never quite thought about it that way before. And I think that there's – I think if you're going to have tolerance in any world, there's room for it to go both directions. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, we can't overpopulate the world with domestic animals. Uh, <laughs> And uh, we have to take our position, and I think our position is definitely uh, a predator. Our eyes are on the front of our head. Um, we've obviously been one of the most efficient predators. And um, our job is to, to – one of our jobs in permaculture is to show people how to do that very well um, and in a very respectful, humane way. I, I, I process a calf on this farm every 10 to 12 weeks, um, and we eat the whole thing. Right the way through, the students and, and, and the staff eat it from head to tail. Um, that's a big job, and it's one that has to be done very well. Um, and, um, and people also want to learn how to do it. And I, 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 I feel very honored that I can help people with that process. Um, but it is, that, is a, that is a serious day. Um, it's a serious event, and then it's a serious process and event afterwards. And all has to be done very, very carefully. But... Um, Yeah, it's great to be able to show people how to do it properly. I think if people did the work of processing their own meat, they'd have a little bit more reverence for the food when they eat it as well. It's it's not just the serious nature of, of slaughter, but it's also it's a fair amount of work to process an animal from from tip to tail, so to speak, uh, from one one end of it to the other. And you do make full use of it. When we we do one duck, we end up with three meals. You know, we do breast one night, we do the leg quarters, maybe confit, and then we do. The rest of it's made into a stock and a soup, and I think that when you when it's your animal that you've worked, that you've processed, that you've got everything into, uh, that you took responsibility for, many times from the time it was born until the, until the day that it, it was slaughtered, you have a tendency to almost have a, a full on feeling of disgrace if you waste any part of it, and 
truthfully, that's the way we should feel about food. But we're so disconnected from it in the modern world, we don't anymore. And it'll put you straight back in touch with it. I mean, I think when people garden, they start to get a new respect for food. But when you, when you take on responsibility for live animals, um, it, it's a whole other level. Yeah, people often say, uh, I hope they appreciate this food when they've gone through the process. Uh, and also, uh, young people often make some kind of adulthood ceremonies type of statement subliminally. They might say, uh, quite often I've heard young people say when they, we've taken them through the process, they say, whoa, I've grown up a bit today. Wow. Wow. Like it's like, a, it's like a, a rite of passage. I've gone through some, I know I've experienced that now. I can say I've done it. I might not do it again. It might be more than, it might not be their job. They say, well, I've, I've done it, but it's not something I'm going to be, that's not my job. I, I, but at least I've done it. And I feel like, okay, I've got to write. I've got to write a passage. And I think, well, that's, and I, I, I just, just happened by accident to me with students. And I, I've heard it quite a few times. I thought, there's something missing, isn't there? There's something missing in society that you, yeah, I can remember, I'm old enough to remember the animals were sometimes in butcher shops, uh, when I was growing up in England. But, um, I see it in third world now. Um, I st still see it in places where animals are outside the butcher shop and they're going to be inside to the next day. And, and women will walk past and size, look at the health of the animal. And, mm. and, and they don't want to buy meat unless they know what the animal health looked like. Mm. But we're yeah. a long way from there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We've moved a long way. <laughs> yeah, and and I guess in the words of uh, of one of your mentors and mine, Bill, uh, there's he he said sometimes what, what did he say there is no such thing as a vegetarian, only a repressed carnivore. Uh, <laughs> he has a unique way about him. Can we maybe finish up as we do today? Talk about a little bit about how, uh, like many of us, that, that was kind of your entry into permaculture was was the work of Bill Mollison and and what it's been like to to work you know, with and around him over the years. Yeah, I mean, we're still quite close, Bill and I, and I hope to be visiting him in the next couple of weeks, and uh, I hope to get him on, on camera too. That'd be um, great. Uh, so we could just, uh, you know, make some connections there. Um, yeah, um, I, have, I, I, I just feel like we'll never repay the debt that we owe Bill uh, for what he's brought to the world. And uh, he still continues to, to to make contributions. He's still writing, and and um, his his words are still passed on. Um, Bill's not travelling so much anymore, um, and um, uh, it's just hard to imagine that someone has has has, uh, has gone through so much in life and thought so much about this system and shared it so selflessly with people. It, it really hasn't take, it taken any personal advantage much at all um, from, you know, in wealth, uh, in, in money anyway. Um, I'm, I think Bill's wealthy in, in other ways, um, in true wealth. Um, but um, uh, it's... Uh, um, and I, I finished my course in 83 with Bill, uh, almost somewhat of a skeptic, and, I, uh, and then realized later that uh, I, was, I was wrong and, and everything we were saying was perfectly correct when I researched it. And that made me pay a lot more attention to Bill. Um, in fact, pay attention to every word that he, he says and, 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 and every word he's written. So I, 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 I don't take any of his words lightly, and, and I teach what I think are his 
uh, the meanings in his words and the meanings of his chapters in his book and even the title of his book and why he called the main book a manual. Um, and um, uh, it's been a great honor to be able to teach with Bill um, and, and, and actually get to a point where I felt comfortable with that uh, because it's uh, I would say he's one of the, the hardest person in the world to teach permaculture in front of. Um, you're teaching a course. I always remember the first time I was teaching um, at, at the institute, and Bill walked into the lecture. I mean, who do you not want to walk into a lecture? Probably Bill would be the worst, uh, because uh, the, here is the, the sort of uh, the, the founder walking into the room. But uh, much later, um, I, I, I got more and more comfortable to teach with Bill. And the last course we taught together uh, was probably Bill's last course, and uh, I taught the majority of it. And he and he let me teach it with him in the class, you know, leading leading the lectures, and that was a great honour. Um, so um, I couldn't I couldn't I couldn't speak more highly of, of of someone who's brought something so important to the world. Well, and I think that the two of you have both brought a tremendous amount of people to the space that would not be there. Here I am, this, you know, survivalist guy. Um, spent a lot of my life learning hunting, fishing, primitive skills and things like that, wild crafting, and was always a gardener and a homesteader. But the two things that brought me to permaculture um, and therefore have brought every person that's come through the survival podcast community to permaculture was your video, Greening the Desert, and it, I don't remember which which one of Bill's early films it was, but there was one film where, and I had just discovered this permaculture thing, and it sounded kind of hippie-ish, and I had seen people rolling in mud and flower power this, and like that, I don't know if that's for me. And I see this gristled old man uh, basically saying he had a choice when he figured all this stuff out to just live in the woods or come back and fight. And those two things together, one showed me there was a certain warrior spirit to, to permaculture, uh, which, which I gravitated to because of my, just my disposition toward standing up for others and things like that and doing things because they're right. And then the work, you know, you talk about the video you do today, the, the cinematography today is Hollywood level. The cinematography, I'm sure it's not a shock to you to hear from the original Greening the Desert, not exactly that amazing. But the fact of what could be done, in a place so harsh, changed forever the way that I looked at agricultural style productive systems. It, it, it just took it took me to a point where I looked out at what I consider sort of a harsh environment here in North Texas and went, "There's no excuse here. If that'll work there, you know, near the Dead Sea where the where the land is salted, then there's no place this can't work." So the two of you guys, I think. You talk about wealth. There's a certain level of wealth in knowing the impact you've made, and the two of you together have made, to me, one of the greatest contributions to our world today that there is, and I thank you for it. Oh, it's, a, it's been a pleasure, and uh, it's been great that it's happened. It's, some of it's just been a happy little coincidence, really, I think, but uh, I was just in the right spot at the right time and just had a go at it, and like that warrior spirit um, type of thing. Bill always said, like, you... It's boring being scared, and um, if you get into a charge mentality, you have no fear. Uh, you just charge at the enemy, uh, wanting to change what's what's in front of you to what you, you think it should be. Um, and and so I'd I'd sort of already adopted that attitude. And when I when I got that job in, in Jordan, I, I did think this looks like the end of the world. 
But um, I'm, I'm just going to have a go at it and do my best. And, and that was basically a, the very, very mainframe systems of permaculture is all I did. And it worked. And, and the natural system come up behind me and, and backed me up. That was what was great. Going back over it over the years and looking at it, think, wow, the big partner is the natural system, isn't it? It just comes in, you do the right thing, and it moves in and backs you up all the way. And they will either back me up here or back me up anywhere. And that was the end of needing any more confidence. It was like, okay, done deal. Let's get on with it. Well, again, I, I thank you for the work that you guys do. And, uh, again, JeffLawton.com for all the videos. And the PDC is coming up again on uh, 7 February. And uh, we've talked about it before, but uh, we'll get details handed over from your folks to mine. But we'll be doing a, a discount on your PDC for members of my support brigade. So I thank you for offering that as well. My pleasure. Well, Jeff, uh, as always, thank you. And if there's anything I can do for you, let me know. And you're always welcome back here. Thank you. I look forward to it. Thanks, All, right. All right, folks, with that, this has been Jack Spearkin today along with Jeff Lott and helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Seeing our food these days, you know it's on our TVs. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer It's like there's nothing I can do It's the price we pay, I guess When we follow all the rules There's a better way to do this Let me show you a better way Revolution is you.